LinkedIn presents. I've always been the technology optimist because I really believe in that combination of man plus machine. But the necessity to understand this and to reskill yourself and to figure out how to leverage this in your field, I think is going to be crucial. And, and I really believe that, you know, individuals and, and people who can't do that, they're probably going to become much, much less relevant over, over the next couple of years. And it's maybe not even years. I mean, this is going at a pace that I've never seen in my entire life. That was the co-founder and partner of Nextworks, author, futurist, academic, and somebody who I have always looked to as my go-to person in helping me understand the future, Peter Hinson. And in this episode, it was really fun to sit down with Peter and talk about all things future and how that's impacting the world of work. Uh, we talk about his day after tomorrow framework and how we can apply that to the field of HR and people operations and the world of work. We talk about the imperative of being curious about some of these new technologies. And we go deep in generative AI. What is it? What is it not? How is it evolving? Why is it absolutely essential that the people that are interested in and influencing the world of work are really not just paying attention to this, but rolling up our sleeves and getting hands-on? There's so much to unpack in this episode, so let's get at it right now. Amplify connects, develops, and empowers the next generation of transformative people leaders through HR Executive Search and the Amplify Academy Learning and Leadership Development Platform. Our executive search practice brings a modern approach to executive search by transparent pricing, unique access to emerging and established leaders, and onboarding advisory. Our Amplify Academy is changing how HR practitioners and leaders develop their careers through peer communities, the AI Learning Lab, and leadership development cohorts. Together, these platforms support our mission of building a better world of work by elevating the field of HR. You can learn more at AmplifyTalent.com. Now, on to the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Redefining Work podcast. I'm your host, Laura Schmidt, and I'm very excited about the conversation that, that I'm about to have with Peter Hinson. Peter is an author. He is the co-founder uh, and uh, partner of Nextworks. He's a global keynote speaker. I've had the opportunity to see him speak several times at Unleash. I've read several of his books, and I, I think the... There's a concept of futurist that a lot of people uh, apply to themselves. And when I see Peter, when I hear his works and read his books, you know, Peter's probably one of the only people on the planet that I use that title for and, <laughs> and frame as somebody that I generally go to to try to understand what is happening in the world around us today, but also in the future. And I think for us in especially business or HR and people leadership roles, this is uh, this is the kind of insight that we need. It's critical for us, especially in the world that we're in today. So, Peter, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, I would love to have you just open with a brief introduction for the Redefiners. No, thanks for the invite, Lars. I, I really appreciate the opportunity and, and thanks for the kind words. Maybe a, a little intro on, on myself. I'm a, I'm a technologist at heart. Um, if you would be able to see where I am, that probably... Uh, tells a story as well because uh, I've been in technology most of my life, but I'm I'm, you know, I, I fell in love with technology when I was 10, 11 years old when I learned how to program on an old Apple II, 
And that love for technology never went away. The love for Apple never went away because I'm one of the largest Apple computer collectors in the world. And that is the number one source of tension in my marriage for the last <laughs> 26 years. And I finally found a solution for that when I had the chance to buy an old abandoned church in Belgium where I live to house my Apple collection. And that was finished the week before we went into our first lockdown in Belgium. So I was in my Apple chapel for two years doing webinars uh, and podcasts. But now, of course, you know, the world has moved on and changed. But I'm a technologist at heart. I did startups when I was younger. Today, I teach at London Business School, where I teach on innovation and disruption. I also became a fellow at MIT Sloan about six years ago, which, you know, where I have a focus on IT leadership and technology leadership. Um, but, you know, I am uh, somebody who loves to talk about how technology changes our world, our world of work. And that's something on which I've written a few books. And the latest one is called The Phoenix and the Unicorn, um, who talks not just about the unicorns, but also about companies that can reinvent themselves. And that's what I call a, a phoenix phenomenon. But really happy to be here, Lars, and, and excited to be part of the podcast. Yeah. We well, you know what I love about your books is that they all tackle macro concepts um, and even from the terminology of the new normal and how that's been embraced in recent years. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later in the podcast. But I want to start with the day after tomorrow, because I think the the framing around the day after tomorrow to me is such an important one for business um, and for um, the, the book is fantastic. So I definitely recommend getting your hands on the book to really understand. But I'd love to have you open with just an, an overview of the concept of the day after tomorrow. And then and then we'll maybe kind of narrow that down to apply that a bit more towards the world of work and how we should be thinking about that in the context of the day after tomorrow. No, happy to do that. And and I think the, the day after tomorrow model is what probably most people will um, or they they will associate me with that model, I think, because it, it started out years ago when I was doing a workshop in, in Barcelona and I drew that model on, on a flip chart and that became a book, but also almost like a philosophy. But it's very simple. How much time do you as a leader spend your time in today, tomorrow and the day after tomorrow? And of course, that's not entirely discreet, but today is the who it's the emails, it's the WhatsApps, it's the messages, it's the Zoom calls, it's the teams. It's, it eats up so much of our day to day time. And then. That is a problem, but the, the fundamental problem is actually how most people look at tomorrow. And tomorrow is our very myopic way of looking at the future. Um, and my favorite example of that is budgets. I mean, budgets is a yearly sarcastic corporate ritual <laughs> where people put fake news in Excel that is consolidated into something which never works. And of course, that's a joke, but then there's the day after tomorrow. And those are the new ideas, new inventions, new technologies. It's basically things that can change the rule of the game. And when I ask business leaders, how much time do you spend on today, tomorrow, the day after tomorrow? The very polite diplomatic answer is, well, 70, 20, 10. But the reality is that you know today consumes 93% of our energy. Maybe you know six seven percent is spent on tomorrow, the classical way of looking in the future. But that day after tomorrow, it's the thing that you want to get to, but you never have time for. And the problem, of course, is value because today is important. 
tomorrow even more so, but that day after tomorrow becomes crucial in a world that is moving so fast that you constantly have to adapt. And if you see that we're hollowing out our capability to spend time on the day after tomorrow, that is a fundamental problem. Now, the joke is, of course, that you know when I talk about today, tomorrow, the day after tomorrow, people say, oh, yes, that, that really makes sense and that I can relate to that. But then I draw that big, ugly red square you know, on the left of that you know, with negative energy, and, and I label that the shit of yesterday because <laughs> there is legacy and complexity in our past that is haunting us. And I think the fundamental problem there is how can companies actually spend less on cleaning up the, sh the soy of yesterday and spend more on that day after tomorrow? And what you see is that with many organizations, many companies, they say, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, he's absolutely right. We have a lot of shit of yesterday. Let's clean that up first. But the problem is, if you do that, you almost never get to the day after tomorrow. And I think what companies need to learn is that you have to do this simultaneously. You have to reduce your legacy and, and the problems from the past. But at the same time, you have to invest in the future and figure out what that day after tomorrow is. And that's not an easy thing to do because in, in most organizations, it's something that is a new way of working, a new way of thinking, a new way of actually thinking about how to manage both of these at the same time. Yeah. Well, I'm curious to get your perspective. You know, a lot of the uh, the audience of redefining work are HR leaders and executives, HR practitioners, or you know, um, you know, business executives who want to build more progressive people teams. And, and we've got a lot of shit of yesterday in our organizations that we have to deal with. We have a lot of you know fires that we're maybe having to be more reactive in responding to. And and I think the, the challenge a lot of practitioners have is is making um, programming, I would say, the, the mental space and the time for the day after tomorrow. And so what, what recommendations would you have perhaps for, for people that are watching? Um, they, they, they get it. They, they realize that they need to spend more forward-looking energy and time. What's the best way for them to go about that? But I think HR, especially, I think is is in a situation where they need to maybe put a different emphasis on that because I think there's there's maybe other parts of the organization that have been more focused on the the day after tomorrow. And I always take marketing as an example because if you would walk into a marketing department of a company, say 15, 20 years ago, that was actually a very traditional way of, of, you know, it's a traditional business approach because, you know, they would try and sense what the customer would want and then figure out how to pitch that to the agencies who would come up with creative ideas. And But there was no data, there was no analysis, there was very little actually data-driven inside a marketing department 20 years ago. That completely changed. And of course it changed because, you know, digital became normal and, and you know, everything that happened with customer innovations became the front and center of an organization's strategy. And all of a sudden, the entire marketing department, you know, you know, shifted. It became analytical, forward-thinking, data-driven. And if you walk into a marketing department now, it's just completely different than it was 20 years ago. But if I walk into an HR department, that is still very similar to what it was 20 years ago. The only difference is that the tools that we used, you know, 10, 15 years ago are still around and are now becoming an absolute legacy problem. And I think at the same time, you see that HR is probably the number one difference that can make a difference between a company that you know, just basically goes along or that can really thrive in this, in this never normal that we've gotten into. 
And I think this is something where you, know, you can say, oh, that means technology or that means data or innovation. Partly, I mean, that's that's a big business, as you know, Lars. I mean, that whole reinvention of the type of tools that we use in the HR space to reinvent ourselves is a big, big business. But more than anything else, I think it's about mindset, culture, and carving out time for that day after tomorrow. So when I have the chance to work with an HR department, I, I literally ask them, how much time do you spend on your day after tomorrow? Who's doing that? And what I found is that if you don't have 10% of your team meetings of your you know HR discussions of your HR strategy spent on that day after tomorrow you will never get there and you're probably going to be stuck in cleaning up a lot of that shit of yesterday you know for a very long time you know, is there an ideal horizon like when you think of the the day after tomorrow and and how HR leaders should be thinking about the forward looking plans how far out is reasonable for them to be thinking particularly i think in this just incredibly volatile environment that we're operating in right now it's a good question, and, and I think the, 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 the only constant that you have is the horizon is getting shorter, and I mean, it's getting closer and closer. Yeah. I mean, I remember that, you know, if you talked about the day after tomorrow, that would be a, typically a three to five year out, or what's gonna happen in a three to five year horizon? Because next year's budget used to be your tomorrow thinking, and then the day after tomorrow was like, you know, the, the, the classical, a little bit further off. But it is changing so quickly now. I mean, when we're recording this, <clears throat> we're about you know half a year into the generative AI craze. And honestly, I've been in IT for 30 years. The last six months have been the most interesting, challenging, and, and exciting thing that I have seen in my entire career. So, you know, eight, nine months ago, nobody talked about generative AI. And now all of a sudden, an enormous amount of people who are doing classical office work or you know white collar work are are being challenged to their very core if they're still relevant for the organization so i think that horizon is getting you know closer and closer and closer i think it only shows that you have to spend more time on that day after tomorrow that it becomes something which is really vital, not just to survive, but to to be able to leverage the potential that you have and to thrive in that never normal. But it's something that um, isn't a luxury anymore. I think it's an absolute must if you want to keep relevant. Yeah, I mean, and I'm glad you mentioned generative AI because I definitely want to spend some time on that with you. I mean, I think, and obviously you're a technologist, you're a futurist, you know, your world is about immersing yourself in these new tools and platforms that um, have the potential to change everything, and generative AI, AI is definitely that. But I think the majority of, you know, professionals, workers, leaders aren't really appreciating the speed at which this is evolving and growing, and how completely disruptive this technology is going to be for everything and everyone on some level. And I would love to just get your general take. Uh, obviously, you've been the last six months, you've been immersing yourself in it. What is your, I'd love to just get your general reactions. Like what's your perspective on generative AI today and how it's evolving uh, and, you know, where you think, I, I think most technologies that are, that are nascent in the beginning and, you know, generative AI isn't nascent, but this consumer grade version of it is, um, a lot of times people kind of look at technologies like this and they're like, oh, well, I'll pay more attention in two to three years. We don't have that time. Like this is this is now. This is changing things now. And I would love to just get your perspective, generally speaking, on kind of generative AI and how that's going to impact the the world of work. I'm getting goosebumps by <laughs> by what has happened in the last you know couple of weeks and months. And I think 
the, the interesting thing about this from a technologist's point of view is that a lot of these underlying mechanisms, I mean, the, uh, the mathematics, if you want you know, to underpin all this, have been known for a very long time. And I always make an analogy that everybody knows that iconic picture of the Wright brothers in 1903 in Kitty Hawk that, you know, the first flight, but actually more than 150 years before that, the mathematics behind that were developed by a Swiss mathematician called Daniel Bernoulli. Every engineer knows Bernoulli's law, which basically, you know, shows how to create lift from an air wing. But for 150 years, it was just you know, an, an academic curiosity. But what the Wright brothers did is they put a 12 horsepower engine onto the wing and boom, flight took off. And, you know, then it just happened incredibly fast. And I think we're in exactly that same phase when it comes to AI, because a lot of these, you know, foundations have, have been known for 50, 60 years. But now with the advent of cloud computing, all of a sudden we have the computing power. We have the 12 horsepower engine to make it happen. And I think that's what we now see in terms of, you know, the, the speed of adoption and the scale. I mean, look at ChatGPT. It, it, it's, it's five days to reach a million users, 26 days to reach 100 million users. That's something you know, that we have rarely seen. And what I find fascinating is a lot of these ideas that in the technology space we've been talking about for a long time, all of a sudden became mainstream. And, and now, I don't know about you, Lars, but I cannot get into a taxi cab or the taxi driver won't talk to me about generative AI or ChatGPT. Every yeah. dinner conversation we have with friends and family is all about ChatGPT. And, and, and I find it fascinating. My wife's a veterinarian and she's been using, you know, the, the Bing version of ChatGPT now for about two to three months and she loves it. And she has, you know, conversations with generative AI that I never thought my wife, who really isn't into tech, would actually have. And I think the impact that we're starting to see is absolutely vital because... I, I, I was at a, I was doing a keynote for one of the largest private equity firms in the world uh, two weeks ago, and they showed a version of ChatGPT, a proprietary version where they fed all the data of this firm for the last. I, they, they've been around for 40 years. So the last four decades of information have been fed into that. And you can now say, okay, we have a new opportunity. We, we need to generate an information memorandum. And you just you know, prompt it in the right way. And it generates an information memorandum in three minutes based on all the data they've had in that company for four decades. And the CEO literally said, we would have hired McKinsey to do this for us. And it would have taken three weeks and $300,000. Now we do it just on our own in three minutes. So the amount of, of you know, staggering you know, productivity gains that we're starting to see is massive. And, and as you know, Lars, one of the big problems that we have in, in, in corporations is what is known as the productivity paradox, is we all use digital technologies, but we're actually not more productive. Productivity has stalled for the last couple of decades. And, and I always make the joke that, you know, a lot of people that I talk to learn how to type on an old mechanical typewriter when they were younger, but they're still using Microsoft Word in the same way. The only difference is they don't use whiteout. That's the only difference. <laughs> right. But we're still spending an hour to make a document. But the idea that you can generate, whether it's a PowerPoint or a Word document or a blog post or you know, a speech, 
in in literally seconds instead of hours, that is going to have a huge impact on productivity. And and I you know there's there's two really big uh, work related elements to that. You know there's one group of people who believe that this is going to be massively disruptive, where we're going to see an enormous amount of uh, white collar jobs basically evaporate as a result of that. And then there's the more optimistic group, which believes that this is going to create new opportunities and chances for people to be creative with this technology. And now I've always, I've always been the technology optimist because I really believe in that combination, man plus machine. But the necessity to understand this and to reskill yourself and to figure out how to leverage this in your field, I think is going to be crucial. And, and I really believe that, you know, individuals and, and people who can't do that, they're probably going to become much, much less relevant over, over the next couple of years. And it's maybe not even years. I mean, this is going at a pace that I've never seen in my entire life. HR leaders today are under immense pressure to deliver results for the business, navigate new social and business climates, and build adaptable people programs built for these dynamic times. We're often asked to do more with less. The new world of work requires new ways to learn and develop our capabilities as HR and people practitioners. The Amplify Academy was built from the ground up to help people leaders efficiently and effectively connect with diverse learning needs for today and tomorrow. The Amplify Academy provides you with highly curated resources, exclusive content, courses, and a community designed to help people leaders effectively support your organization and each other. There are two components to the Amplify Academy, the Amplify Academy Learning Lab and Community and the Amplify Academy Leadership Development Cohorts. The Learning Lab and Community includes an AI learning platform that includes a range of courses, resources, templates, presentations, reports, and more to support the learning needs of today's HR and people practitioners. The Learning Lab subscriptions also include access to the Amplify Academy Slack community, a purpose-designed community to help you build your network equity and connect, collaborate, and grow your network with peers around the world. The Amplify Academy cohorts are four-week immersive peer learning programs designed to help you build the leadership skills and network you need to lead successful teams in the new world of work. Cohort students learn from world-class guest instructors with past instructors including Katie Burke, Katarina Berg, Lynn Oldham, Pat Waters, Claude Silver, Nellie Peshkoff, and so many more. Want to supercharge your people team? Be sure to check out the Academy for Teams product. It's designed to give your people teams access to all 450 plus resources in the Learning Lab and build their network equity in the Slack community, as well as their leadership ability in the Amplify Academy cohorts. You can learn more about all of this at amplifytalent.com academy. Now, back to the show. You know, I'm, I'm so glad you kind of reinforced that endpoint around um, personal investment of time uh, in learning these tools and platforms, because you're right. I think if you, when you figure out even now, and again, we're six months into this version of this, even now with the tools that we have at our disposal right now, this can be, depending on your work, 5X, 10X impact magnifier uh, and productivity magnifier if you understand how to use these tools correctly uh, or, or at all. And I think that that is something that so many people don't quite 
get yet. And the pace at which this is evolving, if they're not waking up to that quickly, it, it's going to be a struggle because they're the people who have been investing time and in learning these platforms and, and playing with these tools are going to be at such an advantage to their contemporaries that have not. Yeah, and I, I think you're absolutely right. And maybe the best illustration of that is if you have kids now, um, then you can see the adoption so quickly because, I mean, ChatGPT came out on the 30th of November in 2022. And then since the beginning of this year, I mean, massively, if you have to do an assignment, if you have to do a, a school report, if you have to write an essay, I mean, students are massively adopting that. That makes this academic year, 2022-2023, the strangest academic year ever. Because I have a lot of friends who, who teach at the university and said, we, we don't know what's going on because, you know, our kids understand this, you know, students understand this much better than we do. So in a lot of universities, professors have had like a crash course on GPT and generative AI just to understand what the students are using. But every single master student who writes their thesis is now using these types of tools. And if you think about that, this is the, the generation which is now going to graduate in one or two years time that are going to find this type of tooling the most natural way to do their homework. So they're going to use that to do their work inside corporations. And I think we're going to have a huge group inside companies that, you know, it wasn't raised with this, wasn't, you know, educated with this, but are going to be pretty much in a situation where they have to understand this because there is a next generation coming that finds this duh, normal to use. Yeah. That's going to be a wonderful clash. And this is not years. This is, you know, in the next year or two that we're going to see that impact. And what are the risks, right? So, I mean, I, and you and I are both bullish on the potential of the value and productivity and just the, the transformative impact that this will have. It's not, you know, whether it will, it will. What are the risks in your view as, as you know, AI continues to develop? Because there's two kind of schools of thoughts, right? There's the consumer grade generative AI and some of the tools that we're talking about that are ChatGPT, et cetera. Um, and then there's broader AI and, the, and there's the, the conversations and, you know, the letters from people like Bill Gates and Elon Musk wanting to, you know, try to put the brakes a bit on the advancement of AI and kind of zooming out, perhaps, you know, we're both very optimistic on the potential, but take the other side for a moment. What, what do you see as being the risks of AI? So when you look at the, um, the, the you know, maybe the longer term risks, and I think that's where the, the, the Elon Musk of this world are, are, you know, telling us that we have to be careful. It's that this is something which gets out of hand, out of control, and, and as humans, we're going to be challenged. I honestly believe that that is probably not going to happen or certainly not going to happen very soon. And, you know, I, I, that letter that came out not too long ago where some of the prominent thinkers of this world, like Harari, said, we need a six-month break, that is one of the dumbest things I've ever seen. <laughs> and, and the reason is you can't do that, and it's impossible to just pause that. And even if all the big Western tech companies would say, okay, let's, let's send all our developers to the Bahamas for six months, that's not going to happen in China, or it's not going to happen in you know, the, 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 the dark web or cybercrime, so you can't just put a you know, six-month pause. That doesn't work. But I think more important is you also see an attractiveness because all the researchers working on this, some people said, oh, this is like the atomic bomb, right? This is like the Manhattan Project. 
true. But even in the Manhattan Project, the best you know, physics scientists in the world wanted to be part of that. And they knew it could destroy the world. But I think it's more important to find out how to actually manage that in, in a correct way. One of the things that I love to look at when these large language models get introduced is the system card. I don't know if you've done that, Lars, but the system card basically is the set of guardrails that they put in place. So if you haven't done that, you just Google system card chat GPT-4 and you get a wonderful document that talks about all the things that could go wrong with GPT-4 and that where they put all the mechanisms in place to actually deliver a positive outcome. So I believe that we can build those types of guardrails into it. I think a more important type of you know um, dangers or challenges that we have is that you have to realize where this actually is, where it has its limits. Because the type of generative AI we have today are basically hyper-efficient bullshitters. That's what they do. <laughs> they generate content that looks really great, but you have to still question that. And, and my favorite way to describe generative AI is dreaming. Because uh, I'm 53 years old, so I have a neural network here in my brain that I've been training for 53 years. For 53 years, I've been you know, connecting the dots and putting neurons in place and making that network you know, really, really, I program that every single day. But when I go to bed, I dream. And dreaming is like generative AI because all the input from the day just gets fed into my 50-year-old neural network and it generates a dream. And sometimes dreams can look very realistic, but they're not real. I mean, they have been generated. And I think understanding where the limits are and what you can use it for, and more important, the role that we have as humans to actually frame that. I, I read a book not too long ago called Framers, and the book wasn't very good, but the, the cover of the book was fantastic. It showed two red hands, and the, the, the gist of the book was everything inside that is going to be done better by an algorithm. I mean, there's no way we can compete with that as human beings, but we need humans to make the frame. We need to be the framers of this because AI makes mistakes, and you know, AI can generate things that look very real, but they aren't actually. So the necessity for humans to make that frame and to guide that, I am a fundamental believer of the idea man plus machine. And I think that's going to be the guiding way of thinking that we need to have if we look at these technologies. Yeah, you know, it's interesting too. I think when you when you look at some of the advancements, even in the last six months of generative AI and, and like, you know, mid-journey and like image development. And over the weekend, I was playing around with a um, uh, an AI, a generative AI tool that basically can create headshots, you know, they're not real. And I, I early, earlier in the year, I played with one as well. And that was, you know, you're, you're a Viking or you're, you know, a conqueror and it puts you in these absurd situations. But this was specifically designed to create professional headshots. And it was, you know, some, you know, it spits out 300 results. Um, you know, many were not there, but a few, I, you know, it was me and I could barely tell the difference. And I think it's interesting when you look at the concept of deep fakes and videos. And, and that's an area where I'm, I, you know, I'm, I have a cautious eye on because I think that for people with, uh, with ill intent, they're going to have tools at their disposal to create unreal video scenarios that, as you mentioned, look extremely real. And as we get into, you know, political environments and elections and different things like that, like the, the ability, the, the adding kind of deep fakes to polarization, to 
social media as a distribution tool and the virality component for that, um, you know, that's something that I, I think we'll be experiencing in the near future that we'll have to navigate and the ability to kind of discern what is real and what is fake. Oh, you're absolutely right. And I think that goes back to that framing. I think that's what we need to do. And I think if there's one thing that we need to nurture also in the next generation is that critical thinking and that understanding how humans have to still manage this and check this. And, and you know, you, you need that human framing to actually make sure and, and figure out what is relevant for you and what is absolutely not and what is fake and what is not. And it's get, it gets more and more difficult. I mean, you now have these Instagram programs profiles where, you know, I, one of my favorites is called Hey, It's Alice. And it's, it's, it's a young girl, Alice, and every picture is generated by generative AI. And it's almost impossible to tell the difference between what is real and what is not. But that sense of critical thinking is going to be crucial. But also, I think that world of content inside organizations. I mean, a lot of companies have hired data scientists over the last couple of years where they want to figure out how to take all the amount of data inside companies and figure out how to be more efficient, more productive. And it's very transactional often where you try and, you know, correlate that to better outcomes. But I think we're going to need a new breed of people, which I call content scientists, where you take some of these knowledges of, you know, neuro-linguistic programming and, you know, figure out how to use these generative tools and apply that to domain knowledge. And I think after everybody's looking for data scientists today, but we're going to look for content scientists. And these are the human framers that understand how to leverage the power of content and can actually really put that to use inside companies and organizations. It's a fascinating concept. I mean, it's just so interesting how fast this is evolving and it's creating whole new functions and roles uh, within organizations. Let's talk tools for a moment. Are there any um, particular generative AI tools that have kind of captured your imagination that you find yourself using regularly? Well, I, I mean, what I'm really fascinated by at this moment is how companies are going to be able to take the knowledge they already have, whether that is in their SharePoints or their Google Drives or their OneDrives, and figure out a way to actually package that. And, you know, they don't want their knowledge to just evaporate and, you know, be out there because this is their intellectual property. But how can you take that knowledge and leverage the power there? So I'm, I'm currently looking at some of those tools that can do that. That is really fascinating. Fascinating. But the scary part out there is that when you look at that broader AI landscape, it's being used now for all sorts of, you know, engagements, customer engagements. Look at chatbots and, you know, what you can now do in terms of having meaningful conversations where people... Customers don't really know that you're talking to a machine, but you're actually, you know, capable of mimicking human behavior. And that can also lead to some really weird stuff. I mean, I don't know if you've checked out Replica, but Replica is, you know, basically a platform where you can build your own avatar. And it's, it's let's be honest, it's aimed for lonely people who just want somebody to talk to. And you can build your own avatar and you can skin it the way you want, but you can start conversations. And it turns out that after three weeks of conversing with your avatar, it not only is capable of sustaining meaningful conversations, but people become addicted to that, that you can actually, um, you know, it's hard to live without these meaningful conversations. So think about what it can do on the long term for, I don't know, mental uh, illness or, you know, people who are suffering from, you know, burnout or depression where you have skilled, capable 
machines that can engage with you and can actually start to heal you. That is amazing when it, you know, but it's also scary. I, I found one startup, uh, Lars, which um, it's called Hereafter, where it's an app that you can talk into. And, and the idea is that it actually preserves your, 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 your thoughts, your stories. You can even upload pictures as well. But one of the things that I've seen is people said, you know what? I gave this to my mother or my father. They might not be around for a long time. And it turns out that if you ask your mom or your dad to speak into the app for three minutes a day during three months and just say, tell a story, any story that you remember from your childhood, when we were younger, you know, things that fascinate you. It not only captures their narrative, their stories actually captures their voice. And the idea is that even if your parents would pass away, you could still dial into the app and have a conversation with your mom or dad as if they were still alive. Yeah. I mean, we're getting into a world that is, you know, freaky and exciting <laughs> at the same time. I mean, that is uh, both freaky and exciting. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's so interesting. And I think, uh, again, if you're not paying attention to this space. Uh, I implore you, I imagine Peter does as well. You definitely have to be monitoring what's happening. You have to be experimenting with these tools um, because they're now, they're not the future, they're, they're now. And the pace at which they're evolving is so fast that if we're not beginning to understand them now, they're gonna, they're gonna grow quite quickly and, uh, and we're gonna be at a deficit. So um, Peter, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, kind of sharing your, your deep expertise your optimism, but also your pragmatism around how this is impacting the world of work. Last question for you as we wrap up, you know, for, for redefiners out there that are watching uh, and, and they want to have a more kind of day after tomorrow mindset. They want to have uh, the ability to really be operating in the, not just the shit of the past, the shit of yesterday, but you know, the present, but also the future. What advice do you have for them? Well, I mean, it's something which more than anything else is a discipline. It's, it's about, you know, making sure that you carve out the time, whether it's in your personal space or in your teams or in your, or, or your, or your board, for example, but carve out the discipline. That's what I would do. And then fill that with, you know, getting inputs that you might otherwise not have. And of course, if you have ki kids, that's, that's a free lens onto that day after tomorrow. But there might be people in your company, there might be, you know, new joiners that are going to be closer to the day after tomorrow than you will ever be. Tap into that potential and whether you call that reverse mentoring or whatever, but I think it's, it's carving out the discipline. And, and, and again, if you have kids, that's the most brutal way to do that. I, I have a, we have a 23 year old daughter when she was uh, 18 and finishing high school. Um, one of my favorite uh, moments was, uh, but brutally challenging, is at the high school, the principal said, oh, would, would your dad want to do a keynote for the school? So she came home and said, you know, the school wants you to do a keynote. Would you do that? And we looked at the date and we couldn't do it. We couldn't make it work. And then my daughter said, uh, oh, that's fine, dad. You know what? I'll take your keynote and I will do your keynote. And that was one of those moments where you think, wow, that's really cool. So I have a very visual storytelling style, as you know, Lars. So she took my 350 slides <laughs> and we went through that that weekend. And she said, no, no, that's irrelevant. Everybody knows that. That's not even true. And she reduced it to 27 slides, <laughs> which means that 90% of my stuff is basically irrelevant for that next generation. But it was really interesting to see the 27, the 10% that she actually said, that is something that I can work with. 
To have that brutal lens onto the day after tomorrow is a gift. But if you don't have that with your kids, organize that because if you carve out the discipline, I think you will absolutely benefit from that. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate that perspective. I can imagine that was an experience to get a good like 27. <laughs> that's what I have left. Uh, and if, you, if you've never had the chance to see Peter speak uh, in person at an event, I strongly encourage it. The, the visual comments and references will make sense uh, when you see a presentation. Uh, you will see a lot of people with their phones out trying to take pictures of slides, uh, but not being fast enough because it is a it is a moving art form. Um, Peter, uh, if, if uh, redefiners want to get their hands on your books uh, or find other ways to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, my website, peterhinson.com. So www.peterhinson with two s's.com. And you can find everything there, including some of the videos uh, that might give you a sample of the things I talk about. All right. Well, Peter, thanks again for making time for this. Thanks for all your work. It's an absolute pleasure, Lars. It was a pleasure to be on the podcast and I wish you good luck in your day after tomorrow. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Redefining Work. For more information on the podcast, past episodes, future guests, and more, be sure to check out amplifytalent.com slash podcast. And if you dig this podcast, I strongly encourage you to share it with your CEO, leadership team, and friends to help others discover it. And if you really dig this podcast, I'd love for you to leave a review on Spotify or Apple or wherever your preferred podcast delivery vehicle is. We'll see you next episode.